make that money. DraftKings session number nine, UFC 241, Cormier versus Miocic 2. Spectate while your pockets accumulate. Make that money. DraftKings session number nine. That's right, people. Nine straight weeks in a row. We've been getting after it on these respective UFC cards. It doesn't matter if it's a bum card like last week's card or a big card like this week's card. We're just going to get after it plain and simple. I'm your host, Uber Mike. And if this is your first time on this respective channel, what I simply do is I go and do tape study for an upcoming UFC event. I break down each and every fighter in each and every matchup. It doesn't matter if you're a big name like Conor McGregor or a bum like Bum Miss McBomerson. I don't care. I'm going to break down your strengths. I'm going to break down your weaknesses. And I'm going to see if you're worth playing on the DK slot. Plain and simple. And so, yeah, take that information, package it up, give it to you. You go into DraftKings and you make an optimized lineup so you can make that money. Also, too, I mean, if you bet, too, and you want to bang out your local bookie, then do that, too, man. Like, go out there and take that money, man. It don't matter because that's what I'm here for. So, first time on the channel, like, subscribe, share this with your friends, share this with the local mayor, share this with your local newspaper, just share this thing, Sharon's caring, y'all, y'all know what it is, but anyway, we got a big card coming up, let's not talk anymore, UFC 241 taking place this Saturday, let's get it, at the main event, we have Daniel DC Cormier at the DraftKings price of 8500 versus Stipe Miocic at the DraftKings price of 7700 and this Bout is basically a rematch of the first heavyweight championship fight that these two had against one another, where Stipe was actually holding the belt. Stipe was the man at heavyweight, breaking the title defense record at heavyweight of three fights in a row, or three successful title defenses, and DC just came in and crashed the party in that regard. Took this boy Stipe out, took his belt, and was also a double champ at that time because John Jones was in rehab. And DC was the current light heavyweight and heavyweight champion when beating Stipe Miocic. But ever since then, Daniel Cormier only defended the belt once right after that belt. After that bout, Stipe has just been waiting in the shadows, binding at the teeth and saying, I want this boy. I want to get after him. I want my belt. I want my belt bag. Rampage Jackson, whatever. Anywho. Let's get into DC. DC, what does he bring to the table, man? DC brings that grind. What do I mean by the grind? Embrace the grind, that wrestling grind. This guy was an Olympic wrestler. Went out there, competed for our country, blah, blah, blah. Comes into the heavyweight division, comes into MMA, actually, and just blossoms. People were calling this guy the Black Fedor. He was able to put his hands together, too. Like, DC is just, DC's the overall package, man. But like I said, most importantly is his wrestling grind. Second to none, doesn't stop, doesn't get tired. At 205, he seemed a bit depleted, but at 265, at the heavyweight division, he is right at home and he is filling out just fine. Can wrestle his ass off. From a stand-up perspective, has really deceptive speed. You look at him, he has the dab bod, balding head, 
42 years old. It's like, man, this old man's going to check out. But then he pops you with a quick one, too. And you're wondering, where the hell did that come from? DC is the main man. And if you see that one loss on his record, that only came from the, you know, John Jones. But, like, come on. If you're losing to John Jones, but then you're out here handling everybody else on the slate, come on, dog. Respect the name. That's Daniel Cormier, dog. In regards to his weaknesses, weaknesses, it's really hard to pinpoint weaknesses in the heavyweight division just because DC has undefeated in that division. He's just been beating cat after cat after cat in the heavyweight division, and no one hasn't really given him a challenge. He tends to run into a bit of his issues at 205, and that comes into regard of him being too short or in regards to whenever he does stand up and a opponent fades him or he does go into like weave shots, he tends to over lean on one side or over lean on the other side. If you go back to his KO, I wouldn't call it KO loss because it was a no contest, but if you go back to whenever he did get quote-unquote knocked out against John Jones, John Jones has read that tendency and capitalized on it. But no one in the heavyweight division has done anything to DC to expose any weakness. And looking at Stipe Miocic, like I said, the former heavyweight champion, defended the belt three times successfully, which makes him one of the highly touted UFC heavyweight champions in the promotion. And what this guy brings to the table is boxing and wrestling himself. His wrestling isn't at the same level as DC's wrestling, but it's respectable, and it's also given his past opponents fits. In regards to his boxing, he loves his one-two. We'll throw hooks and such, but one his one-two punch is where the money's made. Look at the look at the fight metric on the box. 80-inch reach. Obviously, he's going to be using that to stretch his arms out, bang his opponent out, and hopefully get him out of there. But if you look at weaknesses of Stipe Miocic, one of the weaknesses that comes out is he tends to be a bit plotty. And when you see Stipe at the beginning of his career, super athletic, super quick, but then as his like career progress and progress and progress and progress, he seems to be a bit more plotty, a bit more less athletic than he was in his spring chicken days. On top of that as well, another issue with Stipe is he tends to carry his hands pretty low. He tends to have his chin up. His head movement is the be the best. Look back at his first fight against Junior Dos Santos. Even though that fight was a barn burner and even though he got his revenge against Junior in the second bout, in that first bout against Junior, he was just getting tagged left and right and getting hit in the chin and it looked like, where is the head movement? The only time he really showed head movement was when he fought Francis Ngannou but that head movement didn't even last all that long because he was getting touched up towards the latter part of that fight, but luckily Stipe wore Nganu out. But going into the fight prediction for this heavyweight title fight rematch, Daniel Cormier is just going to get the job done again. I see Daniel Cormier actually TKOing Stipe Miocic in the fourth round, and this is the reason why. Daniel Cormier is the most athletic opponent Stipe has fought. Hear me out in regards to this. Stipe, whenever he was coming up in the ranks and whenever he did when his championship was defending, he beat Alistair Overing, Chinny over the hill. He beat Mark Hunt, one-dimensional striker, doesn't have any wrestling. Roy Nelson, same thing as Mark Hunt, one-dimensional striker, doesn't have any wrestling. He also beat Steve uh, Redoom. Redoom, Redoom fucked himself. He, he ran into the, the, the right hand, got cracked, got taken out. Uh... 
in regards to his other, for instance, Nganu, super green. I feel like the Nganu now can give Stipe super fits versus the green Nganu that came in and fought him. And also, his other title defense, oh, Junior Dos Santos just stood there and just got blasted by Miocic. Miocic typically has the wrestling advantage against these heavyweights that have been in that division for a good minute. But when Cormier came in and brought all of his credentials Cormier just clearly has the better wrestling, clearly has fought the better competition, clearly is more athletic than Stipe. Stipe enjoys an athletic advantage over most of his opponents, but he doesn't have that against Cormier. And now it simply comes down to, even though Miocic can wrestle, can he out-wrestle? Can he, can he embrace the grind like Cormier? Hell no, dude. Like, Cormier is like those high-quality hostess Twinkies, and Stipe Miocic, his wrestling is like some great value shit that you see at Walmart. But I digress. Another thing, too, is Daniel Cormier does have a bit of an edge on the feet. And this is just a simple one-liner that my homie Trent told me. Holla at my boy Trent. Check out his podcast, Podcast Plug, Movies for Breakfast. But he told me this simple line whenever I betted Daniel Cormier in his last fight. And it was simply, who hits harder? Stipe Miocic or Rumble Johnson, who Daniel Cormier fought twice and got cracked twice. Obviously, Rumble Johnson. So, Stipe, can he come in here and do work on Cormier and hurt him and get him out of there? Definitely not going to doubt that. But then, Cormier just has too many tools. On top of that, when Stipe was out this whole time and winning for the rematch, Cormier not only defended his title against Black Beast. Black Beast, I know, is a jobber. But Daniel Cormier... Defended his title, got ring experience, and is filling out more and more at the heavyweight division. But also, he was able to get a back procedure done. And in recent interviews, says he's felt the best he's ever felt before. So, what I'm wondering is, what exactly is Stipe going to bring that's going to give him the edge over Daniel Cormier in this respective bout? I don't know. Going into the DraftKings, Daniel Cormier at the DraftKings price at 8500 DraftKings has been so nice to us in regards to Daniel Cormier's pricing. Because in the first time he fought Stipe Miocic, Daniel Cormier was $7,300, man. $7,300. If y'all remember the Starberry shoes, remember the Starberry shoes? Like, those were like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Bad example, but what I'm saying is like, good price for... For, for such a for such a, a high quality fighter really good price 8500 love it love what dc brings love that this fight is five rounds dc can go in there dump stipe on his head wrestle him even knock him out but dc is going to work for his 8500 in fact dc should be nine thousand dollars in my opinion but i digress and with stipe miocic at 7700 if you believe Stipe can get in there and get it done, if you believe Stipe ate his Wheaties and he's going to go in here and do what he needs to do and take out DC, put him in your respective lineup. 7700 is a respectable is a respectable price for Stipe, but I just don't see how he gets it done. I don't see what edge he has to beat DC, especially heavyweight DC, his optimal form. In the co-main event, we have Anthony Showtime Pettis at the DraftKings price of 8300 versus Nate Diaz at the DraftKings price of 7900 And this bout just came together just randomly one day. And now these two are finding each other. It's a co-main event slot. I'm super surprised Nate Diaz actually went through wanting to fight. And the name isn't Conor McGregor. 
I'm just surprised he showed up. He hasn't fought in three years, but let's get into Anthony Pettis first. Anthony Pettis, Showtime guy in front of the Wheaties box, Showtime kick, blah, 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 etc., etc. You've heard everything. But since losing his title to RDA, he's been having a bit of a rough stint. Went down to 145, tried his luck there, got stopped by Max Holloway, fought a couple times at 155, had success here, had losses there. And also, you could tell, like, as his career has just been progressing he just doesn't look like the same guy i wouldn't say he's completely washed but he isn't that killer that he was back in his younger days but yeah like i mentioned 145 went down there to try to claim a belt couldn't claim a belt lost his belt at 155 obviously and now fought a couple fights at 155 and is now fighting at 170 and his recent fight at 170 that he took, he fought Wonderboy Thompson, who was a top contender at the 170-pound division. And even though Anthony Pettis was getting pieced up on on the feet, Anthony Pettis was able to hit Wonderboy with a Superman punch, take his lights out, knock him out, had everybody hype, had everyone going, oh my gosh, Anthony Pettis, he's back, but let's pump the brakes. We got to break this guy down. Good things this guy does is kicks. He has good kicks, good leg kicks, good body kicks, good head kicks. I believe he has like a Taekwondo background. I wouldn't say it's like a high-level Taekwondo background, but the fluidity is in his kicks. Also, he has pretty deceptive power. You see him when he throws. He's not very like fluid with his hands, but whenever he does crack, he cracks. But then also another thing that's good about Anthony Pettis as well is good jujitsu. I believe he's a black belt. Don't quote me on that, but has submission wins against notable high-level submission opponents like Michael Chiesa or Gilbert Melendez. I wouldn't say he's like a high-level grappler, but like I said, he can get it done on the ground, and he can also get it done on the feet. But let's get into his weaknesses. Weaknesses with Anthony Pettis is pressure. Pressure breaks pipes. Pressure breaks Anthony Pettis. Both start with a P. Stupid joke. Either way, pressure, pressure, pressure. Pressure gets to Anthony Pettis. If you see his stint at 145 when he fought Max Holloway, Max Holloway is the king of volume punching, and he just put it on Pettis, man. Just put it on him, and Pettis couldn't handle it. Not only that, you go to 155 when he lost to Dustin Poirier, when he lost to El Kukui, Tony Ferguson, the same situation. He just gets pressured to hell, and then he just breaks, and either he gets finished or he sits on the stool and he he says, I can't go anymore, and it's a doctor stoppage. And then later on in the media, you'll see him be like, oh, I broke my hand. I couldn't continue, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you could tell, like, if fighters just don't play with this kicking range and get in his face and put it on him, Pettis is pretty much a done deal. But even though Nate Diaz, his respective opponent, can do that, Nate hasn't fought in three years. Nate Diaz, this guy choked out Conor McGregor, had his second fight with Conor McGregor, which I thought he won, but that's neither here nor there. And after making all that money, took it to the bank, is promoting CBD. But then after that, he lives out in California. That place is expensive, so you got to make your money somehow, and he's back in here in this respective bout. The thing with Nate Diaz is what he brings to this table is high-volume striking. Just comes forward, boxes you up. And I wouldn't say his boxing is like very sharp or very technical. It's just he's a tough ass fighter, man. He'll take a shot, but after that, he'll give you a shot. His punches don't necessarily have that pop per se, but 
He'll just, it's a death by a thousand paper cuts, basically. He'll just keep popping you, hitting you, working you. And if you don't got the cardio chops like Nate Diaz, he'll drown your ass. Guarantee. But looking at his weaknesses, obviously super hittable. Doesn't really do a really good job moving his head. At times he kind of does, but then that's neither here nor there. On top of that as well, he leans a lot on his front leg, which makes it super susceptible to getting leg kicked, which Anthony Pettis can take advantage of. But another weakness as well is this bout is a three-round bout. And with a three-round bout, Nate Diaz tends to start pretty slow. And if he starts to pick it up in the third round but took rounds one or two off, I don't really trust his finishing ability. Yes, he has a high-level jiu-jitsu. He's a black belt in jiu-jitsu. But he doesn't really have the takedown chops to really force his opponent down there and choke him out. Typically, he overwhelms his opponent. His opponent takes a terrible shot. And then Nate Diaz is able to take advantage of that, scoop him up, and do what he needs to do. The only time Nate Diaz looked good, good, was when he fought Donald Cowboy Cerrone. I believe he landed over 250 significant strikes on Cowboy Cerrone. He looked really good against Michael Johnson. I believe he landed over 150 significant strikes in that bout. And obviously, he looked good against Connor in the first fight because... Yeah, he, he outlasted Connor and did what he needed to do. And I believe he landed 111 strikes in that bout. That's That was in two rounds. And I believe he landed over 100 strikes in the second fight as well. So volume, 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 volume. But going to the fight prediction, you know, <laughs> this is funny. The brain says Pettis just because we don't know what Nate Diaz is going to look like. But I'm all heart, baby. I'm all heart. I'm going with Nate Diaz. Nate Diaz will win this bout by decision. But here is the caveat. Nate Diaz has to show his Michael Johnson or down, uh, Donald Cerrone or the first, I wouldn't say the first Conor fight. He just has to pressure from the word go. I believe that he took this bout because him and his team knew something. They probably saw something in Pettis because Pettis doesn't really, he has a name, but he doesn't have that big money name. So I'm like, that team probably saw something like, okay, I can come in and do work against this guy. But like I mentioned, Nate Diaz needs to pressure. Nate Diaz needs to get in the Pettis' face from the word go. Nate Diaz needs to smother Pettis. And if he just keeps it pouring on, he could possibly get the TKO. But Diaz doesn't have power like that. So, yeah, Nate Diaz by decision. That's where I'm going with all heart here. DraftKings-wise, Anthony Pettis at 8,300, rosterable. Anthony Pettis can leg kick Nate Diaz, you know, put his punches together. And this is at 170 as well. So does Anthony Pettis, is he carrying newfound power at 170? 8,300 isn't a bad price to pay to find that out. And if you just want to go purely by logic that Anthony Pettis has been busy while Nate Diaz has been smoking weed and riding bikes these past three years. Like I said, Anthony Pettis, good good to go in regards to rostering. Nate Diaz at 7,900. 7900 is a bit too expensive just because it seems it seems trappy. We don't know what Nate's going to look like and even if he does put on that volume that I hope he does in order to beat Pettis. How many points? I mean, let's say he puts over 100 strikes on Pettis, half significant strikes divided by 200. That's 50 points plus a win bonus. That's about an 80-point performance if he's able to put 100 significant strikes on Pettis and do what he needs to do. 
but he only has three rounds to work. We haven't seen what he's looked like. And at 7,900, rosterable, but I wouldn't put him everywhere, everywhere. I, I wouldn't. He's definitely not an underdog lock of the card. That's later on in this episode. But if you believe in Nate Diaz, if you want some of that 209, because, hey, this may be his last fight. You never know. Then put him in your roster. In the next bout, we got... My boy, Yoel, Soldier of God, Romero at the DraftKing price of 8600 versus Polo Costa at the DraftKing price of 7600 Big disclaimer here, I'm a huge Yoel Romero fan. He's my favorite fighter in the entire UFC roster. I'm going to try to stay as professional, as unbiased as possible, but this is my boy, man. So let's start with my boy. <laughs> we got Yoel, Mo Mo ah, Yoel Romero, man. 42-year-old Cuban immigrant coming in here, and he is the absolute definition of explosivity. Explosivity at his finest is Yoel Romero. And typically, in the beginning of his career when he came into the UFC, he also wrestled in the Olympics, and he was this explosion, explosion, explosion. He would walk his opponents down, and then whenever he did get close enough, he would just explode. But a lot of times, he would, like, push a pace. But then... As he was climbing up the ranks, and especially the first time he fought Robert Whitaker for that interim title belt, you can tell that as he was getting older and older, because he got into MMA pretty late, I believe he got into MMA around the age of 34 or 33 or somewhere around that time, his cardio was starting to betray him because... With all that explosivity, man, like it's like it, it, there's not a lot of it's not good gas mileage in, that, in regards to that. But so after that first loss to Robert Whitaker, you could see a drastic change in Yoel's style of fighting. Instead of going out there throwing flying knees, leaping punches, explosive takedowns, and things of that sort, super patient counter striker. But what he does is he sits back. He covers up, does some sort of like ghetto Cuban Philly shell thing or something, lets his opponent touch him up, but then when his opponent isn't on their P's or Q's, explodes on them with tenacious shots, which gave Luke Rockhold CTE, which gave Robert Whitaker in the second title fight, in the second bout where they fought for the title, <laughs> Robert Whitaker got all the CTE in that bout. Yoel was dropping him for pillar to post. Not only in that, not only that, but Yoel Romero was $7,200 when he fought Whitaker the second time and scored 90 points in a losing effort, which I thought my boy won. But like I said, I need to be professional. I can't be showing favoritism. I need to be professional with the Yoel Romero breakdown. So in regards to that, Yoel Romero brings high-level wrestling, explosive striking, finishing ability, and is a top of the food chain middleweight. High, high, high quality middleweight. If you look at the weaknesses of Yoel Romero, I would say it's the inactivity and the striking. He's not going to go out there and just touch, touch, touch and get strikes together and rack up points or force takedowns or anything. He's a completely patient fighter, which I think it's a good thing as well for his fighting style because he is 42 years old. But at the same time, he could be losing rounds if he's facing like a more cerebral fighter who's just touching him to rack up points and avoiding his big power. But looking at his opponent, Paulo Costa, Paulo Costa is, he's this is Brazilian berserker. Walks forward, puts his hands up, but then once he's in punching range, just loads up with hooks. What's a jab? What's a straight? 
doesn't matter. It's not in Paul Acosta's vocabulary. He wants to throw big winging hooks. He wants to hit your head. He also invests in hitting into the body, which is really, really, I mean, it's, it's a sneaky good quality of his. He also invests in attacking the body, and he also throws body kicks to the body as well. He'll throw head kicks as well, but most of the time, his kicks really invest in digging into the body. So primarily head hunts, invest in going to the body, but if you look at the weaknesses of Paulo Costa, I don't really see him shooting any takedowns whatsoever. He just likes to walk his opponent down and beat him up, beat him up which nothing wrong with that. He's won all of his respective bouts by KO like that. On top of that as well, his level of competition hasn't been the greatest. Yes, he fought Uriah Hall. And, oh, another weakness on top of that with the level of competition with the Uriah Hall fight, his recent fight, he was getting touched up. He's not super defensively sound. When he opens up, he's like F defense. I'm all offense. It's like if you're playing UFC or you're playing fight night on rookie mode. Just you don't have to worry about defenses. Load up, hit your opponent, whatever. But yeah, fought against Uriah Hall, was getting touched up in that fight, showing his defensive uh, deficiencies on the feet. On top of that, fought the ghost of Johnny Hendricks, who came up to 185 pounds, blasted him. And he fought this dude from South Africa who was an absolute jobber, and he faced another dude from South Africa. So, like I said, this is a huge step up in competition for Paulo Costa against Yoel Romero, and it's a super tall order because, yeah, Paulo Costa can walk down Yoel Romero and invest in those body shots, which will be a pretty interesting X factor, but Paulo Costa, let's get into the fight prediction before I, I jump into that fight prediction. My boy Yoel Romero is going to toast this guy, TKO, Third round, point blank simple, Paulo Costa, this is the biggest step up in competition that he has faced. On top of that as well, Paulo Costa, up to this point, hasn't faced an opponent who is equally athletic as him or superior, superiorly, better, has better athleticism than him, is what I'm trying to say. Not only that, Paulo Costa, a lot of times, his defensive holes are pretty glaring, which Yoel Romero can definitely take advantage of. Paulo Costa can make this fight very interesting if, A, he hits Yoel Romero, and Yoel Romero just happens to show his age or gets wobbled or something, but I'm not going to fall into that hole. Oh, he's going to show his age. He has to, we have to see it first in the ring before we jump to that conclusion. On top of that as well, Paulo Costa's investment to the body against Yoel Romero and being able to avoid those big counter shots can also play a point as well. But then you got to think about it too. Yoel has three rounds to work compared to five round bouts he had with Whitaker twice and all these other bouts where he's been pushed to the edge and such. So we could see a, a lot more aggressive Yoel Romero against Paulo Costa. And no one's never brought that kind of heat against Paulo Costa. And I've been hearing this silly stuff because Yoel Romero won a $27 million lawsuit and people are like, oh, Yoel, he has all this money. He isn't really motivated to fight. Why is he fighting? Blah, blah, blah. For y'all that don't understand, I'm going to give you three words, terms and conditions. Just because he won the respect of lawsuit doesn't mean the money is in his bank right now. This company can claim bankruptcy. I don't think so, but they can claim bankruptcy. They can be like, we'll give you this much money for this much amount of time, but this ain't a legal podcast. This is the Make That Money podcast. We need to break down fights. Yoel's hungry. If he didn't want to take this fight, he would have retired already, but he, he wants to win. He wants to go after this kid. They have beef, and this is going to be a violent fight. 
In regards to the DraftKings price of Yoel Romero at 8,600, Yoel is definitely rosterable, but Yoel is more of, I wouldn't necessarily call him a boomer bust piece, but he 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 definitely it could be a, a slate breaker in regards to when he gets the job done and in regards to how many knockdowns he accumulates. Or if he mixes in takedowns and transitions, I don't really think so, but if he does, that comes into effect as well because the thing is Yoel's Romero's striking output is quite low. So, yes, I'm leaning on Yoel Romero to get the knockout, but if it happens first round, 90-point bonus. Second round, 70-point bonus. Third round where he typically gets his knockouts, 45-point bonus, but then again, like, if he didn't do crap for the first two rounds, then it's like, come on, man. Like, I'm probably going to get, like, 70 points out of you or something. And, yeah, you'll win money if the rest of your lineup's good. But then will you be necessarily breaking the slate with that kind of output from your well? you got to make that choice. And with Paulo Costa at 7600 that's a super attractive price. This guy is typically around the higher $8,000 prices to the lower $9,000 prices. So the fact that he's this cheap, there's a lot of people out there that can be that can play into the narrative of, a narrative of Yoel is old, Yoel, he's won money, he's not hungry, Paulo Costa, he's this big, brute Brazilian guy who's going to come in there and work Yoel. 7600 is a good price and an enticing price for people who believe in that narrative, and he's definitely rossable as well. But I feel like Yoel comes out here and knocks out Paulo Costa, and then after that goes up to him, kisses him like he did Rocco, and say, I love you. In the next bout, we have Sadiq Youssef at the DraftKings price of 9300 versus Gabriel Benitez at the DraftKings price of 6900 And with Sadiq Youssef, Sadiq Youssef is part of this new Nigerian wave that's coming into the UFC with Israel Al-Nasadia, Kamaru Usman. Sadiq Youssef, he's kind of like, he's not like the top, top echelon of that, but he's more of these like Nigerian-born fighters who the UFC really, really want to push. With the DraftKings price of 9300 keep in mind he is the second most expensive fighter on the DraftKings roster slate. And with Sadiq Yusuf, he came into the Contender Series, had a really rough fight against, uh, forgot the opponent's name, but basically he was a 3-1 to underdog. Went out there, scrapped with that guy, won that fight by decision. I believe he was dropped once, but then he dropped his opponent as well. But long story short, he scrapped hard, fought hard. Dana White's like, I like you, here's a contract. Comes into the UFC, starts his first opponent, and then in his latest fight against Marlon, Marlon Morais, yes, Marlon Morais, no, 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 that's not Marlon Morais, Shaman Morais, there we go. He won that fight, pretty lackluster fight, but he was able to score a knockdown at the end of the fight and won that fight. So, so far, so good in regards to his respective MMA uh, UFC career. In regards to his strengths, He's more of a stalker-ish kind of, I wouldn't say plotty, but he like he, he puts the pressure down. He gets in front of you, he cuts you off, he wants you in front of him so he can put hands on you. He doesn't really look to, for takedowns, he doesn't really look to point fight, wants to get in front of you, wants to throw hands, and wants to release you from your consciousness. When you look at his respective weaknesses... He has been dropped in past fights. In fact, when I looked up his one and only loss in his career, it was some sort of like freak takedown slam that he hit his head in and he got wobbled and such. And the opponent just followed it up with punches and TKO'd him. And the Dana White contender series, he did get touched up a bunch in that fight. He also got dropped there as well. And in his latest fight as well, he didn't necessarily get knocked down, but he's hittable. 
he's quite hittable. He's not a Floyd Mayweather, but then he's shown durability so far in his respective UFC career. And then looking at his opponent, Gabriel Benitez. Gabriel Benitez is a fighter from the UFC Latin... No, no, I'm sorry. The Ultimate Fighter Latin season. No one watched it. But anyway, came up the ranks through there. Trains at AKA now. I'm not sure how long he's been training at AKA. But yeah, this this run-of-the-mill Hispanic fighter who... Yeah, Hispanic fighter. That's, that's, that's literally all I can say about this guy. Trains at AKA. Looking at his strengths. Whenever you come in dumb and, on a takedown on him. Or let's say... You play real passive to him, he will put the pressure on. He won't put it on as aggressive as Sadiq, but he will like charge in, throw his right, or he's a southpaw, throw his left straight, tag you there, throw a leg kick here. Obviously, if he's able to TKO you, he'll pour it on. But then if you're not going away, he'll he'll show, he's, he's serviceable on the feet, long story short. In regards to his weaknesses, one thing I noticed was whenever he does throw his hands, he keeps his chin relatively high doesn't really move his head so he'll throw his shots and he'll move his feet and such but the head is stationary making making him super hittable super easy to time also at the same time as well he has a tendency whenever he moves to drop his backhand a bit whenever he fought Andre Feely Andre Feely was able to take advantage of that crack him with the head kick and finish him and also he has a weakness to takedowns in the Enrique Brazola fight when Enrique Brazola fought Gabriel Benitez was able to scoop him up and then drop him on his head numerous, numerous, numerous amount of times. And going into the fight prediction for this bout, I see Sadiq Yusuf winning this bout by decision. Sadiq Yusuf, I see this as more, I wouldn't say a steep step down in competition, but Shimon Marais is a tougher opponent than Gabriel Benitez, in my respective opinion. And this is just more of a showcase and a big pay-per-view card taking place in Anaheim, California, saying, like, hey, here's a new up-and-coming fighter, Nigerian Wave. He's going to come in here. Hopefully, they're hoping that he knocks out Benitez, especially with that bad habit of his of keeping his chin up and dropping his hand down. They're hoping Sadiq comes in, takes him out, gives everyone a big show, and goes with that. But... Sadiq, even though he he comes forward and he brings that aggression, I see Gabriel being durable enough to last all three rounds but lose the fight by a decision just because of Sadiq's aggressiveness and Sadiq having his moments on the feet, possibly dropping him maybe once or twice. Looking in the DraftKings at 9,300, 9,300 is a bit expensive for Sadiq Yusuf. Especially in this respective bout, even though Gabriel is a step down in competition, Gabriel isn't just free ass. He's not just going to go in and be like, hey, I'm here, knock me out. Like, he's going to put up as much of as much of a fight as he can. And if Sadiq Yusuf was at a cheaper price, let's say in the 8,000s or so, like his last bout, that wouldn't be bad. But 9,300, if you put him in your respective DraftKings lineup, you need him to get a knockout. You need him to pay the price because, like, I've mentioned many, many times before on this podcast, 9,300, you got to get the bang for the buck. You can't be, you can't be like Valentina Shoshenko last week, 9,600 only get you 50 points. I'm not mad about it. I'm just raising my voice, but I digress. And with Gabriel Bernitez at 6,900, he's rosterable if you believe he can win, but 
There's so much value on this card, as you will see as we progress in this episode. And 6,900 just to get like a safe floor, just to play it safe on the base floor, hoping that he gets. I don't. I don't really see how he wins, but hoping that he's able to pull off the win, or hopefully, hopeful that he doesn't get finished or anything. It's is kind of choking up your lineup a bit because. Like I mentioned, so much value on this card that you can place in and put into your lineups, and you don't need to curtail your lineup in such a fashion. In the next bout, we have Ian Heinish at the DraftKings price of 8800 versus Derek Brunson at the DraftKings price of 7400 And looking at Ian Heinish, this guy used to be a drug dealer. He was on some narco shit, sold drugs to all the Colombian drug lords and such. He was held up in Rikers Island. I'm not, is, is that similar to Guantanamo Bay? I didn't look that up too much, but it sounds like a hardcore place. It's a hardcore life, and basically, he found Christ. He found MMA, and he's in here, and he's 13-1. He's in the UFC, and he's beaten two respective Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts and is looking to keep that gravy train going, trains at Factory X, and whenever you look at this guy's respective strengths, he is gritty. He is tough. This guy just does not quit. Like, whenever he went against uh, Antonio Carlos Jr., his last bout, Antonio Carlos Jr. is a big middleweight, big middleweight, quite skilled, especially on the ground. And whenever he drags people down there, he puts a suffocating pressure on them and tries to just wear them out, choke them out, get them done. Ian Heinen said, hell no, I'm not having none of that. He was... Even though he got taken down, he was getting back up. He was gammy rolling. He was pressuring Antonio Carlos. And you could just tell this was wearing Antonio Carlos out. And even though the respective bout went to decision, Ian Hines just thrives in those respective situations. Has pop in his hands. Whenever he does throw his punches, they're not more like bang, bang, like straight punches. He tends to have like a dip. So he will either like drop his head and then throw overhand right, overhand left, which is typically his two punches of choice, or he'll like duck his like like uh, his waist, like his base down basically, and then throw those shots over the top and see if he can catch his respective opponent, which he's done in the regional scene. We just haven't really seen it in his UFC career yet. And on top of that as well, does have pop, has finished, whenever he was on the Dana White Contender Series, he finished his respective opponent there, and... Just a grimy, grimy fighter, like I mentioned before. He was a two-time high school champion, uh, state champion wrestler in Colorado. But whenever, let's go into the weaknesses. Whenever he does go for the takedowns, they're not, like, super impressive. They look more muscled than, like, actual technical takedowns. On top of that as well, Ian Heinish does get taken down. And especially his last two opponents, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Black Belts, even though they got they got him down multiple times. Ian Heinish just doesn't lay there. He gets his ass back up. He works to get back up. And he works to get the fight back on the feet and then do damage or reverse the position, get on top, and he can do some ground and pound and such. Another thing, too, is whenever he does get a takedown and is able to get on top, his ride time, his control time from the top isn't necessarily, like, strong. Like, opponents can get back up from him. But, like I said, super gritty fighter, and looking at his opponent, Derek Brunson. Derek Brunson has been fighting in the UFC for quite a while. And what he brings to the table is wrestling as well. Compared to Ian Heinish's two-time state champion wrestler in high school, Derek Brunson was a Division II All-American. 
On top of that as well, Derek Brunson just has this weird power pop in his hands. He slept guys like Dan Kelly, Leota Machida, Uriah Hall, uh, uh, this this look at the this look at his fight like his topology page just knockouts man this taking cats out left and right and such but then let's get into the weaknesses in regards to that this guy stand up is not technical at all and he's a 35 year old fighter so you can't teach an old dog new tricks what do I mean by that whenever he does throw with power. Yes, like he'll throw his straights, he'll come in, but a lot of times he leads with his head and his chin is straight up in the air. He's doing like a Superman or some shit, and it's super, it makes him super hittable. And his fight against Robert Whitaker and his fight against Israel Adesanya, both of those respective fights where he fought good stand-up fighters who can counterpunch, that cost him, and that got him TKO'd. He, got also, he also got TKO'd against Jacare, but Jacare has enough stand-up chops to take advantage of really bad strikers or strikers who have really bad tendencies. Another thing as well with Derek Brunson is he has these weird moments where whenever he is KOing people or whenever he was going on his respective KO streaks, he has like this reckless abandon about him that has like a confidence behind it, and he can just go out there and get the job done. But then in his previous fight when he fought Elias Theodora, he just had this conservative game plan. And even though he was able to win that bout, score five takedowns, I believe he scored 93 points in the respective victory, it just made you question where exactly is this guy mentally? Like, is he trying to go for the kill? Is he trying to win by points? Is he trying to become a contender again? Is he just trying to put on fun fights? And if he is put in a dogfight situation, which this fight has that potential to be a dogfight situation, can he grit through and fight through and do what he needs to do? That's the question. But going into the fight prediction, I see Derek Brunson winning this bout by decision. And the reason why I see that is Ian Heinish, even though he had two impressive victories against two Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts. That's literally what he's fought. Like, when he fought Carlos Jr., even though he was the underdog, he was the underdog in both of those bouts, but he was the, uh, I think he was a bigger underdog against Carlos Jr. I just had a good feeling that he could win that fight just because of the prototype. The pro, like, the, the, the prototype was there. You saw how he could win it. You saw he can grind it out and such. But now, this is his first time facing a wrestler in the UFC octagon. If you look at his one loss, it happened in the regional scene in LFA. He went up against a wrestler who's currently in the UFC. I, I believe his name is Murphy or something. I forgot. And that wrestler was able to get Ian Heinish on his back and arm triangle him and submit him. Not saying that Derek Brunson can do the same thing, but it's more of, you know, Ian Heinish can bring that grittiness and that griminess that can potentially break Brunson mentally. We don't know how Ian can implement that against Brunson because not only does Brunson have takedown chops himself but he's never been taken down in the middleweight in his whole middleweight tenure in the UFC on top of that as well Derek Brunson has that X factor power you can't forget that he's cracked dudes he's hurt dudes and he's taking dudes out so with Ian Heinish, he's super hittable as well. His takedowns aren't super impressive. It's just mostly his heart and his grit that gives him a lot of that push and that in that oomph. 
But going into the DraftKings pricing, Ian Heinish at 8,800, that's a bit too expensive. I'm used to him being at the 7,400, 7,500 range where he was in his two respective fights. But at 8,800, that price being closer to the $9,000 range, you need him to come out here, work the crap out of Brunson, and score like a good high 80 point, 90 point, 100 point performance, which I don't think Brunson's just going to go out like that because the guys who actually put it on Brunson were high-level cats like Jacare, Adesanya, Robert Whitaker. He lost to Anderson Silva, but that's another discussion. But I just don't believe I, Ian Heinish has that same category. And on top of that as well, like Ian Heinish can get taken down. Like We've seen it numerous times in his last two bouts. Derek Brunson can bring that same kind of takedown pedigree to Ian Heinish. And even though Heinish can get back up, Brunson can take him back down, take him back down, etc., etc. If you believe in Ian or you really like his backstory and you can relate to it, Put him in your respective lineup. Derek Brunson at the price of 7400 Good underdog price. Now, obviously, the factors that I talked about before have to be taken into consideration. But power X factor, takedown X factor as well, especially how easy it is to take down Ian Heinish. And I see this fight being a dog fight, but really like the draft king, draft king value on Derek Brunson. In the next bout, we have Devontae Smith at the DraftKings price of 9400 versus Cassius Clay Collard at the DraftKings price of 6700 And with Devontae Smith at the DraftKings price of 9400 Devontae Smith will be the most expensive fighter on this DraftKings competition, UFC 241. And what this young man brings to the table is really, really sharp striking. Trains at Factory X. Fought at the Dana White Contender Series, starched his opponent, fought uh, Julian Arosa in his UFC debut, starched him, and then he fought he fought some Korean prospect. I ranted about this two episodes ago. Not gonna talk about not gonna talk about Asian fighters again. I, you, you know how I feel about them, but either way, went out there and handled them. And the thing about this guy is has good in and out movement, but his in and out movement isn't like some like quick in and out movement like you know, side to side, whatever the case may be. It's like bo- boxing-esque. Like, there's a patience to it. Yes, he throws kicks to the calves and such, but everything is to set up his hands. And his hands are lightning quick. He sets up combinations really well. And one thing that he does really good from a technique perspective is he keeps people at the end of his punches where his power is maximized. It's not like he's throwing his punch and then boom, it's stopping here and it's going short. He's extending them things out and he's hitting knuckles to temples or knuckles to chins knocking guys down knocking them out not only that he just doesn't like hit you with one punch and watches his work hit you with one or two punches and then he slides into space so he can follow up with another one or two punches really really great technique if you look at his respective weaknesses i would say it's the striking volume because a lot of times he's looking for openings he just isn't gonna like go out there and just start swinging wild he likes to wait 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 and then whenever there is an opening he jumps on that thing quick like super fast, but then if his opponent isn't giving him a lot of openings, then from a DraftKings perspective, you're sitting there, and you're like, dude, do something, like, like come on, like you don't go for takedowns, you primarily strike. I need you to rack up significant strikes. And another thing too is looking at his skill set because he does have a loss to in his regional scene against John Gunther, and John Gunther wrestled him down and roughed him up and such. He was super green at the time, and now his takedown defense has improved, but a bigger 
lightweight who can wrestle really well will give Devontae Smith a lot of issues in the future. But Cassius Clay Collard, that ain't the guy, man. This guy's coming in in short notice. Fought in the UFC back in 2014. Took a huge, I think it was about a four-year hiatus or so. I read, I saw like a local article saying like he took the hiatus because he needed a break, whatever the case may be. And then came back in 2018 and took pro boxing matches and pro MMA fights in his regional Utah scene. He actually is a pro boxer. He has a 67-20 and 20 pro boxing record in the state of Utah and has a pro boxing record of two wins, one loss, and three draws in the state of Utah. So not all boxing records are created equal. And if he calls himself Cassius Clay Collard, and I'm not going to make fun of that just yet because we've got to go into the strengths. The strength of Clay Collard is he has boxing and it's not awful but it's a bit brawly so he'll pop his jab he'll throw this another good thing is like he he takes risk which is good if you have like a newcomer coming in or a short notice guy or something he's not afraid to try stuff he's not afraid to go for the win or do what he needs to do to secure the win he's gonna try what he needs to try make happen what he needs to make happen from a weakness standpoint doesn't go for takedowns which would have helped him in his bout, but looks like it's going to be primarily stand-up bout. On top of that as well, even though he has this boxing record and such, it's in Utah. Not going to go any deeper than that. And on top of that as well, his he's brawly. He keeps his hands low. He, like, swings. The only real technical strikes are really his jab. Other than that, once after he jabs, he's throwing, he's throwing hooks from his hip. And he's throwing uppercuts from his hip. Really bad technique. And his chin is straight up in the air. Like, what kind of Cassius Clay? Are you kidding me? Rest in peace, Muhammad Ali. But this guy, he, Ali's turning in his grave. You can't, that's blasphemy the way he's using his name, especially with the way he fights. And he's fighting short notice. Fight prediction. Devontae Smith wins this bout by late stoppage, third round. Clay Collar will leave a lot of openings in this respective bout. He will show his toughness because looking at his, tap, his, fight, his fightography and tapology, he hasn't really suffered a TKO loss. So I'm assuming that he's durable. He's young too. He's 26 years old, same age as Devontae Smith, but obviously a lot more miles. And Devontae Smith is this quick man, quick, fast, athletic on the come up. Clay Collard coming in here short notice, gonna collect this check. He's probably getting 2K to show, 2K to win. So he's like, okay, Dana, I'll be happy to do that on the biggest card so far this year. And going into the draft ca- price, DraftKings price, Devontae Smith, DraftKings price of 9500 it's the same scenario as Sadiq Yusuf. You need him to go out there, get the knockout, get the job done. Against this respective opponent in Clay Collard, I believe Devontae Smith can get it done because I don't see Clay Collard trying to wrestle. I see him trying to be the white rendition of Cassius Clay. So go ahead and roster him. I wouldn't roster him everywhere, everywhere because... We have to be cautious about our $9,000 plays. But I feel like he's going to be able to open up his striking a lot more, especially with how sloppy Clay Collard's striking is. And with Clay, Clay Collard, if you believe he's the he, he's the white reincarnation of Cassius Clay, then please put him in your respective lineup. If he happens to win, I believe this guy will be 2%, 3% owned. And you're going to be like, oh, yeah, you're going to be breaking the slate with Cassius Clay Collard. But if he goes out there and gets slept then it is what it is. 
In the next bout, we have Corey Sanhagen at the DraftKings price of 8700 versus Rafael Sunsau at the DraftKings price of 7500 Going into Corey Sanhagen, this guy is an absolute DraftKings darling. Look at the fantasy points per fight on the bottom chart. If you're listening to this on the podcast, go to the YouTube channel. You'll see all this information that I'm displaying here. 115.4 fantasy fight points per fight, Corey Sanhagen. And if you know who Dominic Cruz is, if you know how he fought, if you know what he did before he suffered all his injuries and such, Corey Sanhagen is the offensive Dominic Cruz. Like he has, he's not, he doesn't move as well as Dominic, but then he moves well enough and he's just purely offensive. Looking at his footwork, very tricky footwork, constantly moving, feints, in and outs, dips, Slashes like this guy keeps you guessing the whole time looking at his footwork in regards to like his kicking and such kicks to the legs kicks to the body those sneaky kicks to the head but his hands are gorgeous those real he can fight off the back foot he can fight coming forward and not only that he works upstairs and downstairs what do I mean by that he goes to the head goes to the body goes everywhere in regards to strike this guy does not stop working whatsoever in regards to his takedowns he does go for takedowns but not necessarily like takedowns where he like drives in and like gets aggressive he sneaks them in with his striking game blends everything well and even when he got takedown because when he fought mario batista mario batista was able to get him down but he was able to transition to a triangle mid takedown and then after that readjust to an arm bar and take care of him as well so Corey Sanhagen, super impressive. In his most recent bout against John Lineker and in another bout against uh, Alcantara, he did get into a bit of trouble there. He was he got tagged pretty early, got hurt. Young fighter, you would think like, oh man, you got tagged, you got hurt. Like this is your first time dealing with this kind of stuff. But this guy just showed veteran poison there, was able to go through that bad time, was able to regather himself, get his rhythm going. And once this guy is in rhythm, it's too late, man. It's like... You're at a dance party, and then, like, once the song's in the middle, you can't jump into that dance circle. It's too late. You know what I mean? The music's already going. Everyone's already dancing, and you'll just look like a fool just trying to catch up to this guy's rhythm. Going into his weaknesses, one weakness I do notice, it's kind of a slight weakness, but in the beginning when he starts to get his rhythm, there is an opening to hit him or overwhelm him and then get on top of him as well. But then it's a very it's quite a small opening because if you don't do it then Corey Sanhagen's gonna start dancing, gonna start moving, gonna start striking, getting in his rhythm, and it's gonna be too late. Corey Sanhagen's already doing the moonwalking and you're over here, you know, looking like a doofus. But looking at his opponent, Raphael Sunsau, Raphael Sunsau, OG in the game, fought in the WEC days at the 145 pound division. Fought at 135. Just been around for a long time. 37-year-old Grizzly Fett beat big names like Marlon Morais and TJ Dillashaw. Big names like that. Guy's been around for a moment. Respect this man, dude. Awesome old-school fighter. Going into his strengths, he is a patient striker. Not very snipey with his striking, but patient striker. Throws a shot here, throws a shot there. Has gotten knockdowns and such in his respective bouts, but looking just to put strikes together, do what he needs to do. 
On top of that as well, he does shoot takedowns. Hasn't shot a lot of takedowns recently, but he shoots an average of maybe like one and a half to two takedowns a fight. And whenever he is able to get on top of his opponent, he has pretty good top control. He's not like locked down like a Damian Maya, but like he's able to get on top, hold you down, you know, transition a bit, score points. Going to the weaknesses of Rafael Sunsal. Rafael Sunsal's striking output, even though he's a patient striker, is super low. Shot selection isn't very counter-esque. He's not like a Yoel Romero where even though Yoel's counter-striking, I mean, his striking output is low, whenever he explodes, he explodes. He's coming in to kill. Versus Asansao, you're hoping he comes in to kill, but most of the time, you're left disappointed. On top of that as well, even though he does go for takedowns, the takedown output is low. And on top of that as well, he has bad technique he like whenever he shoots he doesn't drive through he kind of like falls on his knee first and drives through and if anyone has takedown defense chops or just knows how to defend a takedown either which way then you could take this guy down another weakness i noticed as well especially when i was looking for opponents who are similar to Corey sanhagen you look at the second time rafael's ascensile fought tj dillashaw and when he fought funk master uh Aljamain sterling and I even went back and watched the second Marlon Marais fight. You could tell with his old age, he's getting slower. And these faster guys are starting to take advantage of that. You could tell guys' weird rhythm or weird movement and such are starting to just override his senses a bit. He's not fighting these bread and butter Tom and Jerry bantamweights and featherweights that like he did earlier in his career. He's just getting up there and he's long in the tooth. So going into the fight prediction, I see Corey Sanhagen winning this bout by third round TKO. The reason being is Corey Sanhagen fought John Lineker. John Lineker in his, uh, so Corey Sanhagen fought John Lineker in his recent fight. John Lineker brought that heat. So Corey Sanhagen could have been super defensive, pot shot, try to get a victory. But, but Corey Sanhagen stood in the pocket with John Lineker. He still moved and such, but like stood in the pocket, took his shots, got his shots off, went back and forth there, did very well and now he's facing a slower opponent than John Lineker not only a slower opponent but at the same time he doesn't bring that same heat he doesn't bring that same danger can Raphael Sunsal wrestle grind Corey Sanhagen or could he possibly catch him in a shot hex yeah it's MMA anything can happen but Corey Sanhagen is too nice on the feet his overall game is just too nice he fights for his draft king price like this guy's Raphael Sunsal is a gatekeeper man he, I think he's on the way out, but, like, right now he's on some gatekeeper stuff. Like, he, he's the crosswalk guy, man. And then right after that, they're going to give him a, a whatever. This guy's old. So, going into the DraftKings price, Corey Sanhagen at the DraftKings price of 8700 is a super generous price. This guy should be $9,000 based on how he fights and what he brings to the table. 8700 super affordable. Definitely going to be putting him in a lot of my lineups because he fights for your money, averages 100 points per fight like this guy. Rafael Suntout, 7,500. If you want to see Old Yeller do what he can do, go ahead and put him in your lineup. But then keep in mind, he hasn't scored over 100 significant strikes since his he had a bout in 2014 when he scored under over 100 significant strikes. But typically, this guy is just super slow super conservative if he happens to win he's probably going to score like 60 points or something but i just don't see how he slows down the fight i don't see how he stops this Corey sanhagen train and so that's that in the next bout we have 
Straka Klaus at the DraftKings price of 9000 versus Christos Giagos at the DraftKings price of 7200 And with Draka Klaus, Draka Klaus was initially supposed to fight Benil Del Rouge at UFC Sacramento. That card fell through. And now the UFC has hooked him up with Christo Giagos. And with Draco Klaus, he trains at the MMA lab. He's won all of his fights by decision. And this guy, is, he, he's kind of, he's an okay fighter. He has a 70% takedown defense rate. And whenever he does throw strikes, he kind of throws them a bit wild. He kind of doesn't really throw a lot of volume. On top of that as well, whenever his opponents are being like cerebral and smart and then they're just trying to pick him apart, he does this super annoying thing where he'll just stand back. He won't really like go after you or chase you or try to cut you off or anything and like put his hands up like, yo, we're going to fight or not. And if you're playing DraftKings, you're just like, what the hell, dude? Like score points. Why are you over here? Like whatever. But yeah, Drucker Klaus. He he's he's a rough kid, rough tough kid, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. And going into his opponent, Christos Gallagos, Christos Gallagos, he's coming off a really impressive underdog victory in his last bout. And this kid, what he brings is a tenacious wrestling pace. In regards to he, whenever he shoots, the shots aren't super like technical. But then it's kind of like it's kind of like I'm going back to Ian Heinish a little bit, the 8800 individual. Like it's that grit, that grind, that push. Like those intangibles are what really like get those takedowns or push you past really tough parts in fights or actually make you more aggressive in fights and such. And he has that. In regards to his stand up, his boxing isn't like anything like spectacular, but it's not trash. It's I wouldn't say fundamentally sound, but it's fundamentally responsible. That's the term. Funda, fundamentally responsible boxing. Keeps his hands up, pops a one-two, sometimes pops an overhand right and such. And then whenever he does throw these strikes, he rolls his head, he moves his head, he gets out of there, he does what he needs to do. Looking at his weaknesses, he is susceptible to gassing a bit in later rounds just because of the tenacious pace he keeps in the beginning in the beginning of the fight second round he's going hard he's getting after it but that but then obviously that takes a toll on an individual but then even when he's tired man he just keeps pushing he just keeps fighting and going into the fight prediction you heard it here first my underdog lock of ufc 241 christos giagos by decision is gonna get it done against draka klaus and the reason I see him getting it done against Draka Klaus is I didn't mention this in the weakness portion of uh, Draka Klaus's uh, breakdown, but his last three fights he fought Bobby Green, an over the hill kind of smaller lightweight, Londo Venata, small lightweight, and Daniel Turmer. He lost to Daniel Turmer, small lightweight as well. And what I learned from those past three bouts is these were smaller lightweights who took him down. Now, they didn't have like any significant ride time. I believe Bobby Green had the most significant ride time. But if these smaller guys or smaller lightweights are taking you down, not a lot. Like he was able to stuff a couple of them. But if you are getting taken out by these smaller lightweights, and now you have Christos Giagos, who, if you look at the fight information over there and the height and the reach, and you can just imagine the frame, Giagos is going to be the bigger lightweight come fight time who's going to push a pace and get after you and such, that over there is worth is worth taking a stab at. 
with uh, Draco Klaus. On top of that as well, Draco Klaus wins most of his bouts by decision. He doesn't. He hasn't really shown me any stopping power. He hasn't shown me anything like super spectacular about him. Like he's just, just like I said, jack of all trades, master of none. That's the only thing I can say about Mr. Klaus here. And going into the DraftKing pricing, nine thousand dollars. Fade this guy. Even if he were to win, I, I believe he's going to get you 65, 68 points. That's literally what he's averaging. Like, look at his average down there. 59.1 fights per fight. Like, come on, dude. And you're $9,000? Like, if I'm missing something about this guy, please comment below and tell me what I'm missing. Tell me what I did not break down about him because nothing really looked like spectacular or like, wow, $9,000 fighter. You need to be... You know, this matchup is perfect for you, blah, blah, blah. And with Christos Giagos at 7,200, boy, that is cheap. Cheap, 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 cheap. I like it. Like it a lot. I wouldn't necessarily put him everywhere, 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 even though he's my underdog lock because, you know, you get, you got there's a lot of good value at the $8,000 price here as, as we continue down this uh, episode. But I like it, man. I like it a lot. In the next bout, we have Manny Bermudez at the DraftKings price of 8400 versus Casey Kenny at the DraftKings price of 7800 With Manny Bermudez, 14-0, this guy is a submission machine. Purple ball in jiu-jitsu, but whoever gave him that purple belt is sandbagging him. This guy is rolling at like a, a brown belt or I want to say black belt level, but he's rolling and doing his jiu-jitsu thing at a very high level. I believe he's had three, yeah, three fights in the UFC and in all of those fights by submission as you see with his uh fighty fighting points per fight down there 104 per fight he is locking stuff up he's choking boys out going to his strengths like i mentioned the jiu-jitsu whenever he is engaged in the clinch like he just he knows where his bread is buttered he's trying to get to the fight to the ground and it doesn't matter if he pulls guard it doesn't matter if he gets a takedown it doesn't matter if the opponent's stupid and ducks his head down and they leave their neck open for a guillotine when this guy locks stuff up he locks stuff up like it's not a joke it's not like that those crappy guillotines you see where people are just dropping down and then like there's like a little loose nook and cranny here and you can't finish it this guy as soon as he gets on you it is white on rice. It is the key to the ignition. It just fits. It locks it up. It wraps it up. The opponent's tapping. You're getting your money's worth in regards to Manny Bermudez. In addition, like I mentioned, his forward pressure, he, he tries to stick to his game of getting the fight to the ground, doing what he needs to do. But when you look at his weakness, it's his stand-up. His stand-up is, it got progressively better from his UFC debut but you can see it's quite green. He favors his backhand, doesn't really throw his jab a lot. In his first UFC bout, he got dropped, which shows like, oh yeah, this guy's striking isn't all there. And it's it's a, in the scenario, you can see if he fights an opponent who can stuff his takedowns, not play any games with his respective grappling game and, and jiu-jitsu game and just put hands on him, that can be an opponent who can potentially give him his first loss. And look no further than his opponent, Casey Kenny. Casey Kenny has one respective fight in the UFC, which was against Ray Borg. And Ray Borg, you, if you know this guy, especially back in the UFC San Antonio uh, DraftKings session breakdown where I broke this guy down, wrestling machine, man, wrestles, 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 and Casey Kenny, he wrestled at the University of Indianapolis, and 
he came up in LFA and things of that sort. And when he when he fought Ray Borg, he fought Ray Borg on short notice. And not only did he fight him on short notice, he won that fight. How did he win that fight, especially with Ray Borg's wrestling? He wrestled back. Whenever he got taken down, he scrambled with Ray Borg. He got back up. And not only get back up, but he shot into Ray Borg. So basically got back up, counter-wrestled, transitioned, game rolls, scrambles, everything. This kid got it. And that was on short notice, man. Really, really, really impre- impressive. When you look at his stand-up, he has kind of like an in-and-out kind of uh, kind of stand-up game. His stand-up doesn't suck. But then at the same time, it ain't the best. So what does that mean? It's serviceable. He has basic feints. He has basic one-twos. Whenever he throws kicks, he slams them bitches in, man. He tries to break your knee, tries to smack your, trying to make you piss blood, hit your body, doesn't really throw head kicks a lot, but like I mentioned, like when he throws, he throws with bad intention, good wrestling, good counter wrestling, and whenever he's on top of his respective opponent, he's able to ride his opponent out, control him, really, really impressive, really, really good, I wouldn't say high level wrestling, but good wrestling base, good wrestling awareness, and Looking at his weaknesses, the only weaknesses I could really see is if an opponent's able to pick up on his tendencies and how he moves in and out, especially, it's mostly on the feet. If you're able to see his tendencies on the feet and such, then you could take advantage of that, like his one and only loss he got on the Dana White Contender Series. I forgot the name of the opponent who beat him, but that's the only weakness I was able to really see. But going into the fight prediction, I see Manning Bermudez winning this bout by submission. And the reason I see it like that is even though Casey Kenny does have the counter wrestling chops and the actual like blueprint to beat Manny Bermudez, the way Manny Bermudez locks up submissions is super impressive. He just doesn't waste time, doesn't waste technique, just locks him up, gets after it, does what he needs to do. And on top of that as well, I wouldn't say this fight is a slam dunk for Manny Bermudez because Casey Kenny has to go through Casey Kenny's not only his counter wrestling, but his stand up as well because we don't know what level Bermudez is striking is at. It can get better, but then at the same time, we're going to get a Casey Kenny who has a full camp. This isn't the same Casey Kenny who had a short camp, fought uh, Ray Borg, and then won that fight. And going into the DraftKings price at 8400 Manny Bermudez is in that same territory as Yoel Romero in regards to if this guy not only wins, but like secures that first round or second round submission where you're getting either a 90-point bonus win or 70-point bonus win, then you're breaking the slate based on who else that you have. But if he gets a conservative win or let's say he happens to lose, then obviously that's not going to be as good, you know. But then he, at 8,400, super affordable play in regards to that especially like he's done it so many other times and with Casey Kenny at 7800 that's a good value as well if, especially if you think he's going to come in here and be able to counter wrestle Bermudez and put his game on him and win his second respective UFC bout on top of that as well at 7800 and with the name value of Casey Kenny I could see him being low owned in DFS contests as well so make your choice Low quality fight right here. We have Hannah Cyphers at the DraftKings price of 9200 versus Jody Escabel at the DraftKings price of 7000 And with Hannah Cyphers, this lady is from North Carolina. She, She's a farm girl. She's had two respective UFC bouts, and her initial bout was against Macy Barber. 
and Macy Barber basically just took this girl to town, beat her up, TKO'd her, showed how much of a jobber she was. And in her next bout, came out against Pollyanna Viana, which we all know how how awful she is now, especially after last week. But yeah, came out against Pollyanna Viana, dropped her nasty in the first round, hit her with an overhand right, had her on clear street a little bit, but Pollyanna Viana was able to survive. And Hannah Cyphers won that bout by split decision. And looking at Hannah Cyphers' strengths, Hannah Cyphers has noticeable power, especially in her right hand. She favors her right hand a lot. Whenever she like plods forward and comes forward, really rough and tough girl, she's looking to set up that right hand. Like It's literally like the first strike she throws. And either that right hand is coming over the top and going for your head, or it's kind of like coming low and she's throwing it from like the hip and it's hitting your body. But other than that, rough and tough, scrappy, powerful right hand. Sometimes she mixes in the left hand to come over the top if she wants to throw a combo, typically like a two-punch combo or something. With Hannah Cyphers, Hannah Cyphers is her 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 striking style is just is super weakness-wise, it's super predictable. On top of that as well, even though she's had five TKO wins, it's all against North Carolina bums. She's running through her local Dairy Mart uh, neighbor. She's lo- running through this absolute bums in the regional scene. And even though she was able to display that power against Pollyanna Viana, Pollyanna Viana needs to be cut from the UFC. And that does not excuse Jody Escabel. She is just as bad. She trains at Jackson Wink. And she had a pretty respective bout against Angela Hill. Angela Hill, if you don't know who she is, very mobile, very like herky-jerky kind of good movement for a women's MMA fighter. And Jody Escabel went after her. But then the thing with Jody Escabel is like she primarily boxes. She keeps her hands up. She kind of has like a compact kind of physique. It's like a similar physique to Molly McCann, but she doesn't have the Molly McCann hands. No way, Jose. Throws the same combinations, overhand right, left hook, and... Sometimes when you're watching it, it looks like, is she even landing these? Is she like shadow boxing out there? It's bad. But anyway, fight metric, they count the significant strikes, so I digress. And she, in her first bout, she fought Carolina uh, Kovacavich. And even though she's able like to come forward and, you know, she's willing to go out there and throw hands. If someone's like putting like pressure on her, like Kovacavich did, or uh, Jessica, she lost to Jessica Aguilar. That was really bad, too. But, like, if you're able to put the pressure on her and, like, work her and things of that sort, she kind of shuts down. She has good lateral movement. She's not plotty like Hannah Cyphers, but then, like, it's just, this is this is not a good bout. I, I think I talked too much about this bout. Let's go into the fight prediction. I see Jody Escabel getting her first UFC W in this respective bout by decision. Just because Hannah Cyphers, even though she has pop in her hands, and if Jody Escabel isn't on her P's and Q's and this is just getting touched up, Hannah Cyphers is like aggression and power can give her the nod on the judge's scorecard. But jo- Jody Escabel comes from ja- Jackson Wink. I believe she's the only Jackson Wink fighter who's fighting on this card. So hopefully, uh, Winkle John and Greg Jackson are giving her a lot of attention, a lot of focus. And Hannah Cyphers just comes in with limited tools. So it's like, hey, Jody Escabel, get your head out your ass. This is what you need to do. You have a good low hunch stance. So you can probably like duck underneath like Hannah Cyphers' overhand right or like rotate away from it. Do this. Win by points. 
get your first W so you can save your job. But if Jody Escobar goes out there and her fight IQ fails her like it's done many, many times before, Hannah Cyphers can take this bout easy. And going into DraftKings, Hannah Cyphers at 9,200 is a Ponzi scheme. Do not put her in your roster unless you have some inside information about Escobel being injured or Escobel just having, you know, jaw surgery. And if, if she gets any pressure there, it'll take her out. Do not touch it. Hannah Cyrus at 9200 is an egregious price. If you're a degenerate or if... Just don't do it. Leave Hannah Cyrus alone. Jody asked about $7,000. That's a good value. Just because I see this bout going to decision. Anyone can win. And whoever wins this bout is probably going to score like 50 points, 60 points, 62 points or something like that. So... Take the dog here. Take the underdog. Seven thousand dollars. Do not pay ninety-two hundred for Hannah Cyphers. Next bout, we have Kang Kong Ho at the DraftKings price of eighty-nine hundred versus Brandon Davis at the DraftKings price of seventy-three hundred. And with Kang Ho, Kang Kong Ho, with his game, what he brings to the table is wrestling, grappling, takedowns. That is where this man's bread is buttered. Point blank, simple. This is just what he does. You know what I mean? So, in regards to that, he did it a lot initially back in 2014 when he was fighting. But then he had to go on military leave in South Korea. Same thing that happened to Korean Zombie. And then whenever he came back in 2018 or so, kind of had a, a slow fight in his first fight back. And then after that, he faced a young up-and-comer in his second fight as well. And his third fight, he faced a, a jobber, and he was able to run through him. But... One weakness I do see in this game is his striking. His striking isn't terrible, but his striking isn't very offensive. Like, when he decides to open up, it's sloppy. But then, whenever he faces a superior striker, he has the sense to know, okay, I can't get sloppy, I'm going to get slept. He doesn't have a bad chin, but he just he just knows, hey, I can't get sloppy, I'll get slept. So let me just be real patient, let me back up, and then if I'm getting pressure too much, I'll throw something back to get respect. But then, like, you can see, like, he's not really intending to land. He's just intending to, like, distract you. But whenever he's on his, uh, especially in 2014, like, in his earlier fights, when he was shooting a lot of takedowns, when he's takedown focused, he's able to chain takedowns and get his respective opponent on the ground. And when he's on top of his opponent, has really good top pressure. Shoulder pressures, controls his opponent, does what he needs to do to get grimy, get on top of his opponent, make it happen on the ground and he has submission chops as well not only from the top but from the bottom and looking at his opponent brandon davis he fought in the dana white contender series and then he began his career initially at 145 fought a couple of guys there notable names like sabit and uh uh stephen peterson and, and guys of that nature and recently he's moved down to 135 pounds and won his first 135 pound fight and with this guy he's just a brawler like, he keeps his hands down, and it's funny because, like, when you look at his footwork, whenever he's, like, more light-footed, you can see he kind of, like, slides in and out, and, then like, it's like an artistic kind of brawly style, but then recently he's been more flat-footed and, like, walking guys down and keeping his hands low and wanting to throw and bang it out, but looking at his weakness... You could tell, especially with the weight cut from 145, like whenever he was getting touched up at 145 because his hands were low, he could like take the shots. And in his recent bout against Randy Costa, who uh, Randy Costa is, is a striker, but 
Brandon Davis was obviously bigger than Randy Costa, and then Randy Costa was able to touch up Brandon Davis and wobble him and shake him and such. And you got to keep in mind, this fight is taking place in California, so you just can't weigh 135 and then come back and the fight day and weigh 175. Like, you, I believe you have to weigh like 10% weight or something. Like, don't call me on that, but that's just what I've read. But that and then another huge weakness as well is, guys, if you can grapple, you guys who can wrestle or grapple give Brandon Davis fits, man. Like, he he's really good at getting back up, but he constantly gets put on his ass. He gets puts on his ass, and this is why, fight prediction-wise, Ken Kong Ho wins his bout by decision. The biggest thing with this is Ken Kong Ho has to stay focused. Make this primarily takedowns. Do not come out here to be trying to strike because striking isn't that good unless he's facing a, a Chester A. bum. But if he's able to come out here, get on Brandon Davis's hip, ragdoll him, throw him around, use some of his clinch throws, just use his overall wrestling game because even though Ken Kong Ho has been fighting at the Bantamweight division, he's just about the same size as Brandon Davis, so it's not like he's a smaller, smaller guy, per se. And in regards to DraftKings, at the price of 8900 King Hong Ko, Hong, Kang Kong Ho is draftable. I mean, he is rosterable, I meant to say. But I wouldn't put him everywhere, everywhere, because it's more of the fact of do you trust him to actually go out there and execute a game plan? Like I said, I'm not going to rant about the Asian fighters anymore. Go back to my two past two episodes or so. Not past two, like two episodes back. I had an epic rant about it. You can hear it there. But if he's able to stick to a game plan and grapple against this tailor-made matchup, he should get it done, 8900 He should pay the price. He should be able to get 80 points or so because takedowns, transitions, all that works. is It's it's valuable. And with Brandon Davis at 7300 cheap price. If you believe he can get it done, if you believe he can catch Ken Konho and knock him out, then, yeah, go ahead, roster him. But then it's either he knocks him out or he gets wrestled and in bouts where he's lost because he got wrestled and wrestled and wrestled he scored between like 10 to 15 points so you roster him at your own risk and finally we have another low level women's mma bout we have shanna dobson at the draft king price of 8200 versus sabina moza at the draft king price of 8000 and with shanna dobson she fought on i believe it was tough 23 and she fought on that series. I mean, that tough show as well. Primarily a boxer. She, I believe she had like a boxing background or something like that. And she has like sort of like an in and out kind of style. When she uses her jab, her jab is economic. Like she touches the body. She touches the head. She throws volume. Whenever she does throw the right hand, she just doesn't like wing it. She kind of like moves her feet and like tries to get inside so she can like wing in the shot. And a lot of times, too, she's having the wherewithal where if she does see a bit of an opening, she can put, like, the strikes together. And looking at her weaknesses, like, whenever she does get pressured on the feet or someone has wrestling chops and is able to get her down and such, takedown defense isn't really all that. And whenever she gets pressured, her counterboxing off to her back foot isn't that good. On top of that as well, she has been training at a pretty, pretty low-level amateur gym, and she's taking a 16-month hiatus to do whatever the heck she's doing. And she's an older fighter. I believe she's in her 30s. So it's more like, okay, you took a 16-month hiatus. You're coming back. How are you going to look, especially as an older fighter? Like, are you motivated? Like, are you just taking this bout for a check? Who knows? And then her opponent, Sabina Mazo, young girl, she calls herself the Queen of Columbia. I don't get these nicknames. But 
more of like a tall Muay Thai style. She, you know, pops leg kicks, pops teeps, pops head kicks. A lot of times, like, she will throw punches, but she throws, like, her volume picks up whenever, like, her opponent is stationary or her opponent isn't really pressuring her. Whenever she does get pressure, she falls into the same trap as Sana Dobson. She kind of freezes up a little bit. Like, she'll throw a counter knee or something. She'll, like, actually do something compared to Shauna. But then with her, it's just, like... It's kind of like the same situation with, with, with these women MMA fights. Like, if you pressure, pressure them, it's just like they, they kind of just, they don't really know what to do, per se. Uh, really like the gym she trains at, trains at King's MMA, which is where Kevin Gaslam trains at. Uh, based on what I read, I believe she's the only female that trains there. So, obviously, she's getting all the attention one way or another. And going into the fight prediction, this is a close fight. It's a fight that's primarily going to be taking place on the feet. But I see Sabina Mazo winning this bout by decision. And the reason being is Sabina Mazo, she suffered her first UFC loss, I believe, against Mariah Moraes or something. And she suffered her first loss in her UFC debut, was pressured, got taken down and such. And so I believe that's good for a young fighter, especially like she's 22. You suffered your first loss. You're at a really good gym. So obviously, like you can like focus on that and such. I, I, re- I listened to her interview where she mentioned like right after she lost, she went straight back to the gym. She got with her coaches. She's more like mindful of what she's doing now. She's just not out there just you know just throwing strikes, just to throw strikes, or doing it just to do it. Like she's more mindful of it. And now, like five months later, she's getting Shauna Dobson, who's been on a 16 month layoff for God knows what reason. On top of that, as well. She is training at a lower tier gym. This fight's primarily going to be taking place on the feet. And then Shauna Dobson, she brings boxing to the table, yeah. But then Sabina Mazel brings leg kicks, head kicks. I forgot to mention her head kick is pretty sneaky. She's TKO two girls with head kicks. So hands, head kick, knees, just more weapons from an MMA point of view. And DraftKings wise, both of these women are rosterable. Uh, I'm leaning more towards Sabina Mazo, obviously, at the even price of $8,000. But if you believe Shauna can come in and put the hands on Sabina and put that pressure and do what she needs to do to her, then definitely. Sabina Mazo, I forgot to mention as well, she doesn't really move her head that well. She kind of sticks in the center line. Shauna can get touched too, but then Sabina is like... Sabina is, is like a is like a steel pole, and, and Shauna's like one of those like inflatables you see in front of like the car uh, dealerships that kind of flip around in regards to head movement. That's just my little analogy, but yeah, um, that's what that looks like, and just it's a pick 'em. So pick whichever terrible women MMA contestant you want to put in your lineup, and hope for the best. And that is. The UFC 241 DraftKings Session Number 9 episode. I'm your host, Uber Mike, and I really appreciate you sticking through this entire review. Next week, no UFC events. Your boy gets to take a break, but I ain't really going to take a break because I got more content planned. I'm going to package up, put together. It's a surprise. Subscribe, check it out. I'll package it up, put it out there for you. I'm also going to release some more stuff as well because this is a big fight week and I have some other things that I wanted to actually like launch 
and get out there for y'all so it's not just only DraftKings sessions and that that's it and i know i only drop it like once a week but your man's busy man like this is this is awesome i mean i love hanging with y'all and stuff but this bills that gotta be paid you know what i mean but anyway i digress thank you so much for tuning into the episode enjoy the fights this weekend if you're gonna drink drink responsibly but also if you're gonna drink drink modelo man support the official beer of the ufc but i digress man thank you so much god bless y'all holla at y'all be on the lookout like subscribe share oh yeah well like i meant be on the lookout of new content being dropped this week next week and then we'll be back at it the week after for jessica andras versus willie zhang peace